0: Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths
1: ad-free.
2: Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more.
1: This is a 10th century riddle from the Exeter book. So you have to guess what this is. Are you ready? Okay. My stem is erect. I stand up in bed. Harry down below, a lovely peasant's daughter, a proud maiden, grips me, attacks me in my redness, plunders my head, strangles me, and then wet be her eye.
0: (laughs) Feeling lost?
2: Then you're in the right place.
0: I'm Amanda Knox.
2: And I'm Christopher Robinson.
0: And this
2: is is Labyrinths. Take a while to think about that riddle. We'll come back to it later. In the meantime, allow us to introduce you to a man who likes to lose himself in puzzles, riddles, and mazes.
0: His name starts with an A and ends with a Jacobs.
1: Yeah, my name is A.J. Jacobs, and I'm a nonfiction author, and I've written several books, usually with the theme where I try something out and then write about it. So my most well-known book, was where I lived by all the rules of the Bible for a year, from the Ten Commandments to growing a huge beard to uh, stoning adulterers. I used very small stones like pebble size, so I didn't go to jail. And my newest book is about my obsession with puzzles of all kinds. And I've always loved puzzles, crossword puzzles, but also mazes. And I've always wanted to write about them and justify to myself that they're not a waste of time, that they make us better people and better thinkers. Hmm. And of course, your podcast is called Labyrinths, and (laughs) I don't believe in kismet or fate, but if I did, this would seem like fate that I had to come on and talk about mazes and labyrinths and other puzzles with you.
0: Yeah, we are super thrilled that you reached out to us. We are also huge puzzle fans. Um, We had an escape room wedding of our own. I think
2: we had 25 tables at the wedding, and each table had a theme based around a certain moment or period in one of our lives. So one table was the, the prison years. Another table was Chris is a poetry professor years. And we invented four to five unique puzzles for, for each every table. table that were on theme. Wow. That the guests had to solve in order to plug in a code into this timeline wall and sort of restore our fractured uh, timeline. It's a
1: time travel themed <laughs> wedding. What kind of puzzles were they?
0: Oh, across the board, everything from logic word puzzles to little tiles that you had to move and adjust in order to like create a pathway to jigsaw puzzles to we had one where they had to like rescue a little doll from um, underwater using only magnets. It was all over the place.
2: Which was to represent (laughs) the time Amanda almost drowned when she was like three years old.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh my. Yeah. Well, uh, if you ever renew your vow, I would love to come (laughs) to part two. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we
2: spent about a year building and researching and making puzzles.
1: I love that. And I actually went to another puzzle-themed wedding during this book. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the MIT Mystery Hunt. It's like the Iron Man triathlon of puzzle competitions. It's like 72 Mm. hours and all these genuine rocket scientists go there. They are hardcore and they always open with a a sketch, like a little skit. And the year I went, it was a a real wedding, an actual wedding between two puzzlers filled with excruciating puzzle puns like, uh, I can, can promise you, I will not double acrostic you, things (laughs) like that.
0: (laughs) That's so great. Oh, I love that. How did you decide that you were going to go down this puzzle rabbit hole and where did you start?
1: I've always loved puzzles. Uh, Since I was a kid, I would draw these big vases on our living room floor and subscribe to Games Magazine and Uh, Yeah, I didn't have, as you might imagine, the busiest social life, so this was sort of my solace. I've written a lot of books about various topics, but... I've never written one about my true passion, which is puzzles. So COVID came. I was like, this is the mm. perfect opportunity because puzzles really kept me sane during COVID yeah. as they did so many people. And I thought, all right, here's my chance to really dive in to this amazing world because there's so many subcultures within the world too. There's the crossword people and the Sudoku people who don't like the Ken Ken people, uh, the Jigsaw people, the Maze people who don't like the Labyrinth people, as we can discuss. So it was uh, it was fantastic.
2: What about the Wordle people now? Where do they fit in the Matrix?
1: I was able to slip Wordle in it right before the book closed. And I am a fan. I am part of the cult. I do it every day. I think the brilliance of it is that it's it's rationed, uh, so you mm. can only do one per day. I love that puzzle crazes have a long history. There was a puzzle craze in 1810 where everyone's doing tangrams. This is a, an old Chinese puzzle where it's seven wooden shapes, triangles, and, and uh, squares, and you have to arrange them in certain Certain ways to make figures like boats or people. It came to Europe and people were just obsessed with it. Napoleon was apparently an addict, although he mm. was exiled on an island at the time, so he didn't have yeah. much else to do. He was uh, in a pandemic-ish situation. <laughs> I, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing about it is, and all the other puzzle crazes, is that everyone was freaked out. This is going to drive mm. the population crazy. Oh, really? And there are all these editorials, like the New York Times, when crosswords first came out. Their editorials are hilarious because it's like, this is a pestilence. This, you know, wow. it's causing marriages to fall apart. <laughs> People are going blind. <laughs> it was like on and on.
2: Monday, November seventeenth, nineteen twenty-four. The New York Times writes of the nascent crossword craze,
0: Scarcely recovered from the form of temporary madness that made so many people pay enormous prices for mahjong sets, about the same persons are now committing the same sinful waste in an utterly futile finding of words, the letters of which will fit into a prearranged pattern. This is not a game at all, and it hardly can be called a sport and those who play get nothing out of it except a primitive sort of mental exercise.
1: So puzzles are always at first controversial, but then people... realize if you're going to have a vice, this is a pretty good one to have.
0: You know, that's actually fascinating. I never thought about there being hysteria around puzzles, but puzzles are a kind of magic. There's a, a sort of twisting of reality that happens that you have to undo, I suppose. And once you're in the know of how to do a puzzle, I'm even thinking of like a Rubik's cube and there's a line that you cross. You become part of this secret society of people who know how to solve Rubik's cubes. Did you find that over and over again.
1: Yeah, I love that analysis. Uh, I think it's true. They're they're close cousins of magic and also of jokes. It's that twist at the end, mm. the, the reveal, and the aha moment is what they call it in puzzles. And I think it, you know, humans we are wired to love that aha moment because that's how we come up with new things. That's how we came up with the wheel or the mRNA vaccine. So yeah, I definitely see the the links.
2: What is the beginning of puzzling in human history?
1: Well, it's one of the oldest forms of entertainment. Uh, There are riddles from Babylonian times. They're not not hilarious. You're not going to fall out of your seat laughing. Uh, There's the famous Greek riddle, uh, the riddle of the Sphinx. There's a riddle in the Bible that Samson tells that's just terrible. Out of the eater comes something to eat. Out of the strong comes something sweet. Um, So what is that? What is that describing? I
0: mean, I'm thinking like milk might be...
1: It is food related. Nice. Okay. But what is it? Well, there's no way to get it because it's a supremely unfair riddle. The answer is a lion whose stomach has been ripped open and there's a beehive inside where they're making honey.
0: Oh, come and on. I know. <laughs> That's not fair.
1: It's the worst because Samson had just seen that. He had done it. He would killed the lion and he came back and there's a beehive. He's like, oh, this might make a fun riddle. But yeah, creating riddles is an art. And clearly Samson had not mastered that art.
0: So who are some of the best puzzlers in history then if Samson is our Not good example.
1: (laughs) Well, you got Archimedes, who came up with Eureka. He's certainly one of them. I define riddles quite broadly, so breaking secret codes is a a puzzle. Uh, So Alan Turing, one of the greatest, Mm. and I have a whole section in the book on secret codes and ciphers. And one of my favorite trips was I went to the headquarters of the CIA. Ooh, yeah, where they have one of the great unsolved puzzles of the world. It's called Cryptos, and it's a sculpture that was built around 30 years ago in the headquarters of the CIA. And it's got 2,000 letters on it uh, in a secret code. Hmm. And not even the CIA has cracked this code. And there are thousands of people who spend crazy amounts of time trying to figure out what this code is. They've cracked part of it. And hmm. it seems to be instructions to like a buried treasure somewhere on the CIA headquarters. What? But what I think is remarkable is the grit of this community because there's a community of thousands of people who've been working on it for 30 years. And so when my kids are working on a math problem for like two minutes and they're like, I give up, <laughs> I'm like, listen. 30 years these people have been working on it. Give it Yeah, give but it a is there time.
0: buried treasure at the end of that math problem? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a great point. Maybe that's how to get them to study, is to bury some treasure. I like
2: that idea. Wasn't there an Edgar Allan Poe cipher that went unsolved until very recently, a few years ago?
1: Yeah, excellent memory. He had a a column where every week he would print a cipher and his last one was not solved until about 10 years ago. I met the guy who solved it uh, Hmm. and he just did it with pencil and paper, which is unusual because nowadays most people are using massive computers.
0: That feels like cheating. Isn't the point of puzzling to just (laughs) do it by your own devices and not entrust some AI to help you out?
1: I talk a lot about AI versus humans and I have a section on chess puzzles. Gary Kasparov came over to my house to talk about chess puzzles, which was fantastic. Of course. Uh, First of all, he criticized my chessboard. He's like, this is a cheap chessboard. (laughs) And I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) He was fascinating. and He said, I am the first knowledge worker to have their job threatened by AI, because as you Mm. might remember, He was beaten by Big Blue, the IBM computer. And so he's like, I'm the first. I am patient Mm. zero. And I don't think that they're going to take over the world. I think it's going to be a collaboration between humans and AI. I hope he's right. The
2: interesting twist on Wordle that I also saw recently was the absurdal puzzle, which uses AI to fight back against you and continually change its answer to force you to try and take as many guesses as possible.
1: Yeah, I do love that. It's so creative, uh, changing the puzzle as it goes. The level of trickery and deceit is just delightful, even in something like jigsaw puzzles, which I always thought was sort of the, I was a little snobbish about jigsaw puzzles.
2: What are the clever deceits that happen in jigsaws?
1: Well, uh, a couple of things. First, there are, companies like this one in Vermont that make woodcut puzzles. And they are so sadistic because they have pieces that you think are edges, but they're not edges. They're pieces pieces from other puzzles that they put in there, pieces that- uh, So you don't have to use every piece. No, you don't. And there's holes in the middle of the puzzle. That's a whole other level. And they're super expensive. They're like $10,000. So that's not true. There's some that are like $500, but they can go up to $10,000. But I also went to the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship and represented the United States of America with my family. And we were a disaster. came (laughs) in second to last. We did beat one of the Spain teams, but Russia was just a force of nature. And talking to them, Russian team, and seeing them in action, it, it did give me a whole new level of respect for jigsaws because if you're doing it at a high level, you have to have a meta strategy. Sometimes you want to look at the shapes. Sometimes you want to look at what's missing. Sometimes you want to... Look at the colors and all the colors in the sky. Blue is not always blue. They're going to be shades of blue. So right. there are all these lovely subtleties in assembling a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I just love to see people operating at the highest level, even if what they're doing is kind of silly or not valued by society. And that's what mm-hmm. I saw at this World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship.
0: You've mentioned how there's an undercurrent in society that... Puzzles are not a valuable source of time. They're a waste of time. Where do you see that mindset and where do you think that comes
1: from? I do see it sometimes. It's the idea that you're not directly getting food. You're not finding a mate. You're not building something that has utilitarian value, and I disagree with it. I think puzzles can teach us so much about how to think, how to solve problems, how to be compassionate, how to look at the world from different points of view. We are wired to want to play. We're wired to want to practice these things. So whether it's practicing you know, wrestling or mm-hmm. practicing how to come up with interesting solutions, it's good for you. So I am very pro-puzzle, as you might imagine. <laughs>
2: We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener?
0: Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinth Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of
1: truth and grace that you
0: can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the puzzle mindset and when someone enters into a puzzle, what is happening in their brain?
1: Sure. There are a few things that are so important. One is being flexible in your thinking, which you talk about all the time and avoiding the confirmation bias, avoiding one of my favorite words is apophenia, which is the problem of finding patterns where none exists. Mm -hmm. So finding Jesus's face in the French toast. And if you are a good puzzler, you have to be looking for patterns, but you cannot fall in love with your hypothesis. Mm. And Amanda, that you are a victim of apophenia because those judges and prosecutors fell in love with their hypothesis and every random bit of information they tried to force into their crazy hypothesis. Yeah, And so to me, a good puzzler is one who is able to keep an open mind. Even when doing crossword puzzles, I I use pencil. There's no shame in pencil because you've gotta be able to erase it. So apophenia, avoiding that to me is a crucial part of the puzzle mindset. And I actually try to use the puzzle mindset. I have an aunt who I love, but she's been an anti-vaxxer even before COVID. And so instead of viewing a discussion with her as a battle, I try to see it as a puzzle. The puzzle is why does she believe this? And what evidence could I show her to try to change her mind? Could be working on that puzzle for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very hard puzzle, I have to tell you. It is a stumper. But, you know, at least it's a better way to approach it, I feel, mm. even understanding her point of view of why she believes it is a step in the right direction.
2: I mean, it probably has value even from a personal psychological perspective, talking about things like depression and h- how we deal with uh, our own ego and self-confidence and all that stuff. I haven't often seen that the puzzle mindset brought into something like talk therapy. But if you're looking at your own you know, psychological problems and, well, my spouse and I always fight in this way or whatever your issue is, you can approach that like a puzzle too, right? Uh, If you're trying to find a better sense of wellness and peace in your life, well, that's also a puzzle. And what are the inputs to that puzzle and what are the victory conditions? And
1: yeah, I think it's also psychologically helpful to frame other problems as a puzzle. If someone tells me about the climate crisis or climate apocalypse, I just want to curl up in the fetal position. But if someone says... What can we do to solve the climate puzzle? We
2: got to get below four degrees rising, whatever, by this year. Right. How
1: do we do it? How do we do it? That is so much more empowering. That's really interesting because
0: I think that the thing that puzzles are is they, by design, have a solution. So there is that sort of optimistic outlook to them. They are not just problems. They are problems to be solved. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about some of the people who you have come across in the course of this book who have dedicated their lives to designing puzzles. It's, a, it's something that I only really came to appreciate when Chris and I dedicated a whole year to designing <laughs> puzzles for our wedding and being like, wow, there's a lot that goes into this to make it just hard enough that it's fun, but not too hard, that it is discouraging. And how do we trick people to get them to move in this direction without them realizing that we're doing it? Yeah, because,
2: I mean, it's easy, I feel like, to make a puzzle that is almost impossible to solve, right? And it's also easy to make a puzzle that's very easy to solve. But there's that wide swath in the middle of a puzzle that's fun and a puzzle that takes effort. Um, and a and a puzzle in which the effort is fun that is much harder I think that's the art in my experience of de- oh, trying yeah. to design. No, it. you're yeah.
1: absolutely right, uh, and that's what puzzle makers tell me. That what you said exactly. It's so easy to make an impossible puzzle, and it's also easy to make a, a too easy puzzle. And finding that Goldilocks zone is really mm. a challenge. And since this is called labyrinths, I'll I'll bring up one of the favorite puzzle makers I I met who is. Uh, Uh, A British fellow named Adrian Fisher, who is the most prolific maze designer in the history of humanity, as he modestly says. (laughs) And he has designed over 800 puzzles in all, I guess he doesn't have Antarctica, but every other continent. And he says it's hard because he's playing a chess match with you. He knows he has to lose, but he has to make it fun and he has to give you little aha moments throughout he talks a lot about narrative, like he's crafting a narrative. And what I like about him, besides the fact that he has a healthy ego, he uh, <laughs> he he's very creative. And I think that's the best puzzle makers. You have to think as far outside the box as possible. And so his mazes will have water spouts. They will have a chair that you sit in that rotates and brings you to the other side. To me. The best puzzlers are just so creative, and it's an art form. And, and in fact, Nabokov, he was famous for creating chess puzzles, and hmm. he talked about a chess puzzle. It's a great quote, but it's all about how a chess puzzle is like a poem and or a piece of art. It's got surprise, hmm. it's got deceit, it's got resolution, it's got conflict, and I agree with that.
2: Actually, i spent some time... Um writing riddles as a poetic form. You can view them just as uh, like haikus in a way.
1: Absolutely. I love that because I have a section on historical riddles. And one of my favorite people I met was a woman who is sort of the rock star of riddle studies. And she is an expert on medieval riddles, which are hilarious because a lot of them are super (laughs) dirty. They're written by monks, But they're really naughty. But as you say, they're also poems. Here, can I read you one? Yeah, I would would love to hear one. Real quick. All right, here's one I have in the book. All right, so yes, this is a 10th century riddle from the Exeter book. Uh, And so you have to guess what this is. Are you ready? My stem is erect. I stand up in bed, hairy down below. A lovely peasant's daughter... A proud maiden grips me, attacks me in my redness, plunders my head, strangles me, and then wet be her eye.
2: <laughs> Are we talking about fellatio here, or or a hand job? What what is this?
1: That you have a very dirty mind, Chris. I'm very disappointed. It's an onion. It's an (laughs) onion. onion. (laughs) I stand up in bed. I guess like the bed of the mm-hmm. the farm. I'm hairy somewhere down below, so it does have those uh-huh. little hairs. And then in the end, wet is her eye because mm. she's crying from cutting the onion.
2: Okay, excellent misdirection. Obviously. And plausible yeah. deniability, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. The monks could always say, "What? it's not our fault. We This is a perfectly innocent... Yeah. you're the one who's uh, got
2: the dirty mind. Yeah.
1: Right. And the other... Interesting part of these uh, medieval riddles is that there was no answer key. Hmm. We don't know what the, I mean, we assume it's an onion, right? But there are like a hundred, and some of them, we still don't know what they are. And there are all of these professors who are spending Hours And Mm. uh, debating, you know, one has 14 possible solutions and Mm. no one knows. And it's interesting because I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, I'm a big fan of epistemic humility Mm -hmm. and being okay with not knowing something for sure. On the other hand, I'm very wary of the idea that there is no right answer at all Hmm. and that there is no truth out there. It's all just competing narratives.
2: Well, did you see this New York Times crossword recently that had two possible solutions for Star Trek and Star Wars? I did that one. I like that. Yeah, right. I mean, sometimes there are multiple answers intentionally.
1: Right. If they're intentional. Yeah. Yeah. That is a genre of puzzles that I am actually Mm. a big fan of, those that have multiple solutions. Because I actually think that mirrors life better because there is no one solution. There's a bunch of solutions to any problem Mm. and some are better than others. Well, speaking of designing
2: a puzzle that you want to be solved... It seems like not everyone is trying to hit that Goldilocks zone because you talk to some people who are attempting to design puzzles so hard that they'll outlast the universe, even. <laughs> you know, right. Or like, that, or drive people insane.
1: That is me. Well, yes, those are two different ones. I was actually the one behind the puzzle that will outlast the universe. That's sort of the. Okay. The. Uh, the uh, end of my book, I team up with this brilliant Dutch designer and we decide to try to make the hardest puzzle ever in terms of amount of time it would take Hmm. to solve. And it's a mechanical puzzle. It's wood with a little metal rod in it. And you have to turn these little pegs to make the Hmm. rod come out. But it's what's called a recursive puzzle, meaning the more you get into it, the exponentially greater the number hmm. of moves you have to do. So this will actually take one point two decillion moves to solve. Wow, and if you do one per second, the the universe will die of a heat death before it is solved. And I just love it because, yeah, it is ridiculous. I like it for a couple of reasons. I love it because, first of all, I think it's this idea that sometimes you can't solve a puzzle and you have to be okay with the the adventure, the meditative attempt to solve it. And I also love it because I think that big numbers are very important and we don't pay enough attention to big numbers. And 1.2 decillion is a crazy big number. And I talk about this in my Rubik's Cube chapter as well. Like our failure to grasp big numbers is at the root of a lot of problems, including the pandemic. We just did not understand how fast the pandemic, was going to spread. Our brains are not built to understand numbers like that. So getting used to big numbers is a very important part of life.
2: Yeah, I was thinking that the only way your puzzle's ever going to be solved is if artificial superintelligence comes along that can do m- many more than one moves per second on this device.
1: Right. I talked about this with Gary Kasparov. They are able to see things that we cannot see because they don't have any emotional baggage. If they're in a chess puzzle, they're fine with sacrificing a queen. You know, if you play chess, sacrificing a queen oh, like, makes you physically yeah. ill. Right. And they're like, I don't care. They just look at the pros and cons mm-hmm. and they're like, all right, this is just another move. I'm sacrificing a queen. Mm. It is fascinating. I mean, I talk about when will it be that AI can write sort of quirky nonfiction books like mm. In 30 years, would they have been able to write a better book about puzzles than I have? And I I don't think it's out of the question.
2: I don't think it's out of the question either. I think it's going to happen a lot sooner than people imagine.
1: Great puzzle makers will tell you that it's all about the narrative. And one of them, the godfather of Sudoku was what he was called. He summed up puzzles in three symbols, which was a question mark, a forward arrow, and then an exclamation point. So the Mm -hmm. question mark is, what's going on? The arrow is the struggle to get there, and the exclamation point is the resolution. But I think that works not just for puzzles, that works for Most art, movies, books, there's the struggle and then the resolution. And I am very drawn to that. I think all humans are. I actually have mixed feelings about it because sometimes we create conflict when we don't need to, when maybe there's mm. a, a solution that is not zero-sum that can benefit everyone. This brings me to labyrinths mm. because while researching, I went to the annual gathering of the Labyrinth Society and it was fascinating because I learned that labyrinths and mazes are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. At least according to you, knew about that.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: didn't. So labyrinths, as you know, are not puzzles. They are one path that you follow to the center. And mazes, of course, are puzzles because you have choice points. So the labyrinth people are seeing it as a spiritual exercise. You are not stressed out. You do not hit that conflict and then resolve it. You are just there's no question walking through. There's no question. And sometimes I think that we should embrace that side of life, the freedom from choice. There is something lovely about that. And and I wrote a book about the Bible, and I'm not religious, but one of the appealing things about religion is the lack of choice. They give you a nice architecture with which mm. to live in. You know, you pass a, a homeless person on the street. You don't have to think, should I give him money? You know, what's mm-hmm. he going to do with it? You give him money because that's what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the difference between labyrinths and mazes is very interesting. And to me, it's the difference between the traditional conflict resolution narrative and the opposite, which is that there are no choices. And they're both important.
0: Totally. If we're going to go deep metaphor, what is life? Life is a labyrinth in which you have to solve a series of puzzles along the way. (laughs) Ultimately, like your life is your life. You're going to live it. Whatever's going to happen to you is going to happen to you. But part of living your life is constantly solving puzzles along the way.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And you talk about this, get lost, but embrace it. We never know what's going to happen, but you got to try to enjoy the twists and turns.
2: The origin of the of the labyrinth term is interesting because the the conception of labyrinth you're talking about uh, and the modern day labyrinths that have the winding path that always turns to the left and arrives at the center, you see that image on Cretan coins dating back many centuries. And that image of the labyrinth has been around for a long time. And yet, it's also associated with the story of Daedalus and the Minotaur and that story in the myth sounds much more like a maze. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound like yes. the Minotaur is in the center of a labyrinth. It sounds like he's in the center of a maze. And you need Ariane's <laughs> right. thread to find your way back. I'm not sure if you have came across anything about this. Like, how did that concept even get differentiated? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. And I did look into the history of labyrinths and mazes. I'm sure you know the story, but for listeners who don't, can I just summarize it real yeah. quick? Please, <laughs> absolutely. So... This was in ancient Greece, and the Greek god Poseidon got angry at the king of Crete, King Minos, because he didn't sacrifice a white bull to Poseidon. So Poseidon, who's apparently a misogynist, says, okay, I'm going to punish King Minos' wife. Hmm. And he put a curse on King Minos' wife, the queen, that made her fall madly in love with a white bull. Mm. So the queen is obsessed. She tries to seduce the bull. The bull's like, "Mm, not for me. So she hires Daedalus, who's the greatest inventor in Greece, and asks him to build a realistic-looking cow out of wood and cowhide with a secret compartment inside near the back. So he does, and she gets into the compartment nude, And the fake cow is wheeled over to the bull and the bull's like, all right, fine. He went to all this trouble. So he impregnates the queen and she gives birth to a monster, this half bull, half human minotaur. So he has Daedalus build a maze to keep the Minotaur in, and the Minotaur turns into this horrible beast who eats virgins. And this is continued until Theseus uses the ball of yarn, a very good strategy, to kill the Minotaur and get out. But to me, it's just like, wow, they were bizarre back then. Uh, you know, they <laughs> are bizarre now, but that is a bizarre story. <laughs>
2: I'm wondering if you have a good puzzle or riddle or something that we could offer our listeners a chance to solve.
1: Oh, absolutely. I've got tons. One puzzle that I think translates well to audio is uh, they're called ditloids. It's uh, where you take a common phrase and that begins with a number and you reduce it to its initial letters, okay? So it's 52 W in a Y. So that answer is 52 weeks in a year. Exactly. Okay. So let me start with uh, one that's not so crazy, but then they get a little more challenging. You ready? Yeah. 5,280 F in a M. Feet in a mile. Nice. Three S in a T. Okay, so this this is what happens. This is what my brain is the doing. The possibilities three are Three socks him. in a turtle. Three <laughs> yeah.
0: sandwiches in a tonga line.
1: That's it. You nailed it.
2: Three sides in a triangle.
1: Mm. All right. What about five F on an H? Five F on an H or 10 F on two H's?
2: Uh, fingers. Fingers and hands. Nice. Yeah. Exactly. Nice.
1: Uh, all right, 14D and an F. Now, this is embarrassing. I have this in my book, and I can't remember what the answer is. 14 uh, days in a fortnight. Holy, you ca- I can't believe it. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that is right. How did you know that? I how just did, know how, how many days
0: in a fortnight there are.
1: <laughs> but where did fortnight come from? That's not a normal word.
0: I, I've occasionally used fortnight. In my, in my, <laughs> I use Fortnite once a fortnight, at least. So. Nice.
1: <laughs> Fortnightly. Well, that was cool. Uh, all right. How about two more? Six F in an F.
2: Six feet in a.
1: Uh... You got it. It's in there. What has six feet? Oh. Six in feet a, oh, in
2: oh, a grave. I'm, oh, a Fathom.
1: Fathom. Yes, I didn't exactly. actually know how
2: how much was in a fathom until just now. <laughs> <laughs> Learned something new. That's a that's a cool puzzle form. I like that.
0: Okay, listener, one last puzzle. You ready?
1: Nine l of a c. Nine l of a
2: c. Here's a hint. You'll see a lot of these on Amanda's Instagram.
1: I mean, again,
0: this is where my brain just just random. Like nine licks of a cat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you had the right. Uh, C, and you had the right Lives. second letter Lives yes. of a cat. My oh, life. hey, there I... you go. See, well, there we go. Uh, mm. there you go. Fun. Very. I hope so.
0: That was a th- thank you for providing so many aha moments there. That was a, exactly
1: that was a pleasure. A well, me. thank you for uh,
2: being the first ever guest we've had to actually dig into the namesake of our podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure.
0: I I am delighted. If you want to dig deeper into the world of puzzles, we highly recommend A.J. Jacobs' new book, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life.
2: The book is out now, and you can also find A.J. at ajjacobs.com. And of course, a book about puzzles wouldn't be complete without...
1: The book has a hidden puzzle contest, there's a secret code that is hidden in the introduction, which can be uh, seen online. Hmm. So you don't need to buy the book, but I would love it if you did. And that secret code, if you put it into the website, will open up a crazy puzzle hunt designed by some of the best puzzle creators in the world. And the first person to solve all the puzzles gets a $10,000 prize.
2: Hey, all right. There's that buried treasure.
1: There's the buried treasure. So please enjoy that. They are really crazy puzzles. I love them. I couldn't get them all. I would not win the 10,000 myself.
2: That contest does sound hard, but we've got an easier one for you. There's a puzzle embedded in this episode.
0: And if you solve it, we'll shout out the charity of your choice on social media.
2: The answer is a single word, a powerful word.
0: A favorite of LeVar Burton and John Lennon alike. DM us your answers. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox.
2: At Man Under Bridge. Or on Instagram, at MC Carbon.
0: And at Amama Knox.
2: And if you didn't know how many S are in an LR... What?
0: Stars in a Labyrinth's review?
2: The answer is five. Please help us out with a rating and tell your friends to get lost with us.
0: This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with additional editing and sound design by Josh Thane, and theme music by Josh Budo Carp.
2: Are you still there, listener? Okay, one last clue for the puzzle in this episode.
0: If you're hearing an ad, you've gone one word too far. Fun fact, for every hour of Labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering.
2: What keeps us going? Coffee. Coffee.
0: So if you're enjoying Labyrinths, please buy us a coffee.
2: Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation.
0: Thanks for getting lost with us.